Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 280, recorded December 22nd, 2010. Bluetooth Security. Security Now is brought to you by Ford and voice-activated sync. Featuring true hands-free calling, turn-by-turn directions, 911 assist, and more. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. And by MailRoute. Businesses of every size use MailRoute. One user, 50,000 users. It doesn't matter. MailRoute will protect you from spam and viruses, simplify your life, and make your email usable again. To save 10% for the life of your account, visit MailRoute.info. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security, your privacy, everything you need to know to protect yourself online. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, the star of our show via telephone today. It's not quite as online as usual. (laughs) Because Skype is down, which probably is story number one for Security Now. I've never heard of such a thing. It would be nice to know what the cause was. You know, there have been so many people lately, major sites have been down because they've been involved in one way or another with WikiLeaks, and the so-called anonymous group have, you know, vented themselves on one organization after another that has indicated any resistance to, um, you know, staying faithful to that to that cause. So. The, I mean, the Skype folks are blogging uh, and tweeting and saying, yes, we know our server is down. Oh, I bet they know. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> can you imagine? Um, but, yeah, I just cannot remember that ever happening before. Now, I think you and I have done one show via phone before, and maybe it was, was it when I was in Canada or something. In the dark ages, Leo. In the dim dark ages. Yes. But if people will just uh, bear with us, uh, we will uh, we'll just have phone quality audio. If you're watching the video, we do have a video of actually pretty good video of Steve, as good as uh, Skype, and that is through Google and uh, their their uh, GTalk plugin for Gmail. Uh, so it's uh, you know at least we got video and we had some problems. We were going to use it for audio, but we have some problems with the audio, and I imagine on this weekend Google will be will be doing it as well. So uh, by the way, the Skype blog is now down. <laughs> so that's I find kind of interesting. Um, that you wouldn't expect to be tied to the same servers that they use for Skype. Unless it really is an attack on their network. I'm wondering now if it might be a DDoS on their network. Yeah, if it was on their network, it could bring down their whole infrastructure, which would be all of the various pieces that they've got. Wow. So what is our topic of discussion this day, Well, for a long time, people have asked about Bluetooth security. What is the security protocol, technology, you know, it's it's something that, well, um, all of us are using, probably have had have the occasion to use from time to time, if nothing else. And, of course, some people, um, as, as um, laws are enacted that require that we not hold cell phones while we're driving, that we use, um, that we use cell phones wirelessly um, with the little he- headsets. And, of course, in California, there is that law now. So you see people walking around with a little right. Bluetooth radio stuck in their ear. 
uh, you know, blinking. Um, so it's finally time here on our last episode of 2010. I thought it'd be great to cover the inner workings of the Bluetooth uh, function and security protocol. And probably week after next, we will, or week after that one, because we'll have a Q&A week after next, um, since, since we're going to skip the episode through the holidays, uh, we'll talk about the, the attacks that have been um, launched against Bluetooth, having first established the context for how all the crypto stuff works. Well, I can't wait. And we've got a ton of news. I want to, I want to before I go any further, remind, or I want to, not remind, remind myself not to forget to thank everybody who posts things to me in Twitter. Um, it's like I have this huge network of, of people out there surveilling what's happening in the world. And, you know, many people say, I'm sure you've already seen this several times. It's like, yes, well, in, ca- in fact, I have, but I'm glad, I, you know, not to miss it. So, I mean, my, uh, this has really been useful for me, as it turns out here, you know, toward the end of, what's it been, maybe six months that I've been experimenting with Twitter. It's, um, you know, people are out there seeing stories and saying, hey, can you explain what this means? And it's perfect because it gives me a lead to follow up, and then I figure out what it means, and, and I bring it to all of our listeners. All right. I'm thrilled to, uh, to get to talk about that. Let's uh, get to the uh, security news. Tons. Tons of security <laughs> news. We'll get to that in just a second. Before we do, I uh, want to say hello to our friends at Ford. They invited me to – I was bummed. They invited me to do uh, Madrid for the, uh, for the test drive, and I'm actually on a boat somewhere in South America at the time, so I can't, I can't do it. I'm kind of, <laughs> kind of disappointed, but some of our listeners will be going to Madrid to test drive the brand new 2012 Ford Focus, their new world car. Uh, it's kind of the down to the deadline. You've got about nine days left. The uh, contest ends December 31st, 2010. So what you do is go to twitfordfocus.com, and you can find out more about it. You'll make a video. By the way, not only do you win a, you could, could you win a trip to Madrid to test drive the Ford Focus, but you also win ten grand for the charity of your choice. So make the video and say, uh, here's why I think uh, this charity should get ten grand. Ford's going to donate a half million in all, and why I should go to Madrid. I, you, not I, me. They already inv- they wish I could go. December 31st, 2010 is the deadline. TwitFordFocus.com. I'll tell you, when you drive that Ford Focus or you drive any Ford with the Ford Sync, you, you, I really want you to try the Sync. It's amazing. It's optional on some, standard on other Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. It is the true hands-free calling. I mean, your hands are on the wheel. Your eyes are on the road. You press a button on the wheel. You talk to your car. You say, call Steve Gibson at home, and it will call him. Uh, you say, play the Rolling Stones. It'll play them. If, if you've got an iPod, uh, a USB iPod attached or a Zune attached, it has a USB port. In fact, the new uh, My Ford Touch in the in the Ford Focus has two USB ports and an SD card slot. I mean, this you turn your car into a computer practically. Uh, you get turn by turn directions too. Even if you don't buy the big GPS package, it will talk you through. And in fact, it knows about traffic, so it will reroute you if necessary if the traffic's bad. Nine one one assist. So if the airbags are deployed, it calls nine one one and sends them your GPS coordinates. I love Ford Sync. In fact, it's kind of funny. I was just tweeting with Scott Monty at Ford today. My wife wants to buy a Flex. She wants to trade in her year-and-a-half-old Toyota Highlander for a Ford Flex. She loves the Flex, and she wants the Sync. 
Sync is a, is a great, great selling point. But all the Ford vehicles, the Edge, the Flex, the, the Escape, the, the uh, Focus, the Fusion, they're all great cars. The Fiesta, let's not forget. Make sure you get the Ford Sync in there. Go to your Ford, Lincoln, or Mercury vehicle uh, dealer and test drive the Ford Sync. Keep your hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road, and yet c continue to participate in the world around you. And thanks to Ford for a great 2010. We just got word they'll be back with us in 2011. We couldn't be happier uh, to be associated with, uh, I think, one of the great industrial giants in the world. And, and, uh, and I'm just so thrilled to be part of it. So, Steve, let's get to the uh, news of the, of the day, shall we? Well, following up on, um, uh, well, okay, first, updates. Uh, no security updates of any sort. Um, however, we do, yeah, we do have a new problem with uh, IE version six, seven, and eight. There's a, a new, it's a so-called use after free problem, which is where memory that's been allocated and then released back to the system, or, or freed as it's called, um, still has a pointer which code can maliciously use. And then when that when that memory gets reused. It, it sort of re-invokes it, so it's sort of zombie code. And uh, initially, this has been known for a few weeks and was not believed to be exploitable, but some exploit proof-of-concept code was recently posted to the net. This is remote code execution vulnerability. Uh, it's another one of the CSS, the cascading style sheet parsing problems. We've seen a number of those in IE recently. So, you know, here we are just having done our world-breaking uh, or record-breaking update of 40 different um, patches in, in, a, in a large number of, of security issues last week, and we've got another problem. So with any luck, uh, <laughs> Microsoft will be fixing this as their first <laughs> act of uh, 2011. It's amazing. Yeah. By, by the way, uh, uh, for those of you just tuning in, Steve uh, is on the phone right now with us. We do have a video of him thanks to Google Talk, but uh, Skype is down. And by the way, Steve, Twitter is now down. <laughs> really? Well, I think it's related. I think uh, people, oh, everybody's, right, just, just an overload. everybody's tweeting, Skype's down, yeah. and they broke Twitter. <laughs> you know, it, it just shows you we're so reliant on the Internet these days. And we've talked about this. It, it's in some ways a very fragile system. Well, yes, I mean, not even in some ways. One of the things, one of the comments that I made last week was that... People have been surprised, for example, that the anonymous group using that LOIC, the Low Orbit Ion Cannon, that was their name for their distributed denial of service attack tool, and all, all it was doing was making standard TCP connections and transferring data to, like, you know, major sites like Visa and MasterCard and so forth. But it turns out that that normal web traffic is the way our systems are scaled so that they're able to handle your typical normal amount of, of, um, of user access, which really is very spotty and not continuous. You know, you, you click a link, you ask for the page, you get the page, you ask for a few, you know, images and things, and then typically you're there sort of figuring out what you just got for a while before you do it again. So it what's interesting is that it doesn't really take that much to overwhelm many of these high-profile sites. And, and as you say, we're really dependent upon it, which actually is one of the stories I wanted to mention is, as I'm sure you have seen, Leo, the FCC 
yesterday, yes. on Tuesday, voted to enact the so-called Open Internet Order, which was the the long-awaited net neutrality bill. However, it really disappointed a lot of people. Um, it you know net net neutrality is this notion where an ISP, someone who we pay to give us connectivity, is would be formally prohibited from any sort of traffic shaping or content discrimination. The concern is, for example, that if Comcast and, for example, NBC merged, which I think that's there's discussion of that happening right now. That's right. That that Comcast could preferentially carry NBC's content over competing content. Well, it's well, already happened because Comcast has gone to Level 3, who provides the backbone for Netflix, and said, you are going to pay more yes, for Netflix. Yes, there is a, peering, a big peering dispute with Level yeah. 3 and Comcast. Yeah, essentially the idea would be, so, so is, if Comcast was kept as a strict, just a conduit, which to me really seems like the right solution, is not give these carriers any, any motivation for for preferring any internet content over any other, just make them a pipe. Um, but it looks like that's not going to happen because we've got you know the tendency to merge companies and and reduce choice, unfortunately. Um, so um, anyway, the the point is that this is a very weak net neutrality bill, which has really upset yeah. the people who've been following this closely. It doesn't do anything for mobile brand, uh, mobile broadband. That's the real problem. I mean, yeah. it, you know, I mean, it just basically says, okay, you do anything you want. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and you know, you've got to worry, too, when the carriers are, are happy with this bill. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because it's like, uh, okay, wait a minute, maybe we ought to read this again and see what it was we just gave them. Um, also, if you read the language, it says like nothing. For example, it says bars wireline-based broadband providers from unreasonable discrimination against web traffic. Well, what does that mean? Unreasonable, right? You know, unreasonable to the CEO of that company. <laughs> yeah, who's to say? Or exactly. to you and me? Yeah. So anyway, it just seems like it's you know re actually uh, it's worse than having nothing because now it seems that there's something, and so now they're not going to work on it. And even so, apparently there's already talk of repeal of this. Oh, yeah, it's funny. It, it, it made no one happy, which I guess in some ways is a, it means maybe it was a good compromise. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I was very disappointed. I, I, and, and frankly, I don't know who, if the government should be involved in this. Um, but we are seeing evidence that uh, somebody needs to do something. Well, I'm, you know, analogies have been drawn to of, with the idea of, of turning the Internet into things like radio and TV yeah. and cable. And it's like, oh, no. I don't want to go there. I, oh. Yeah. Yeah. So that would not be good. It's a difficult, it's really difficult to know what to do. Well, when you bring big, big, big bucks and commerce yep. into the picture and yep. companies get really big, they start saying, hey, you know, they get aggressive. And it's not clear that the, uh, that the customer wins no. in these cases. Um, just when we were recording the podcast last week, that news had hit alleging that that the crypto system, the crypto framework in OpenBSD may have been compromised right. as much as long ago as a decade ago by a government contractor called NetSec. Um, additional news has come out in the meantime, and as it turns out, I saw the name of an old friend of mine, an ex who's now ex-FBI. He was with the FBI. His name is E.J. Hilbert, who 
was involved in sort of in this side of the techie stuff. That's why I knew him was because he was involved in in the in the the technical side and also was local. It was over coffee when I was getting ready to do my e-commerce system that he gave me some tips about things I wanted to make sure I did in terms of configuration because he had seen lots of credit card fraud perpetrated against other organizations that had not configured things correctly. And I've already passed all these on to our listeners over the last several years, so there's there's nothing new there. But um, he, he had some knowledge of it, and what it appears to be is that this company, NetSec, produced for a while, um, and they're gone now, but they produced 10 years ago a crypto accelerator. So there was hardware that accelerated crypto, and of course we needed that much more once upon a time 10 years ago when our processors were much less capable of just doing crypto and software with sufficient speed. So hardware acceleration of cryptographic operations was not uncommon and was much more common back then. And what is, it, what is believed to be the case is that a, a fork of the OpenBSD Unix was used experimentally by this company to experiment with modifying their own drivers for this particular card to introduce some leakage purely as a proof of concept, does this even thing kind of work? Never at any point was there any notion of this code being put back into the public, being merged back into the regular open BSD source base. So this is, a, as we hoped, and as we suspected last week, a complete red herring. Um, you know, the, it is the case that if you parse the facts that were presented, technically they're true, but any conclusions drawn that, that implies that there's something like out in the wild that has been compromised is like many steps away from being true. So that's good news. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and frankly, uh, besides being a relief, kind of not surprising. I just, yeah. I, I just, I, I just couldn't fathom that this could possibly. It, be the it case. is the case, though, that many people have been looking at the code, and some bugs have been found, and some messy functions have been cleaned up. So, as is always the case, when you look at something more carefully, oftentimes you're able to say, "Oh, look, you know, we're smarter now than we were ten years ago. This is a better way to do that." So it's sort of been good. This is like dusty old code that no one's really looked at for a long time. And so in, in dusting it off, they've said, oh, we could fix this up a little bit and make it better. <laughs> good. So that happened. Good. Yeah. Um, I got a kick out of uh, one little bl- news blurb, um, and that was the way that some of the WikiLeaks uh, fight back guys, this, you know, members of the so-called anonymous group, had been tracked down was from document metadata, which they had left into some documents that they had released. And I thought this is a good time to mention to our listeners who are security and privacy conscious, sort of a reminder about document metadata. Because, for example, Microsoft Word is famous for doing this. And even PDF files now contain a lot of stuff. Um, the idea being that the the data that you see in the file itself, the actual 
you know, presentation on screen is now just a portion of what the actual binary file contains, and that there's a lot of stuff that you don't see when you look at page one, page two, page three, printed out, and so forth, which is actually present, and it sort of, it sort of accumulates as this document moves along. Um, Microsoft has some pages that talk about this awareness, and it's from there that I got a list, their list of things that they know they include in Word. So, for example, well, Word, Excel, and PowerPoint, you know, their main, their main flagship products, your name, your initials, your company or organization name, the name of your computer, the names of the network server or hard drive where the document was saved, the names of previous document authors, document revisions and versions, comments, and more. So, so it's just sort of a little heads up to our listeners that if you were concerned about the history, the 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 past, the ownership, the authorship, and so forth, it really makes sense. For example, to to um, you know, export the document into a text file, which has no metadata, or maybe into an RTF file, which is only presentation data and not data that isn't uh, displayed. Or you know, print it to you could you you could print a an existing document, for example, into a PDF. Then you've got it in a format where it's only containing the stuff that you printed. Although again, it could also know anything about the system that it was being transferred on. So it's a little sticky these days to be completely anonymous and, and to maintain privacy, even with documents that don't appear to be releasing any information about you. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, speaking of all the feedback that I've received from people through Twitter, um, uh, someone tweeted me, uh, Tim Raymond, uh, just a heads up that a couple days ago, Secunia who produces that very nice personal software scanner called PSI, that's, <laughs> that's the acronym for personal software scanner, just took it to version 2.0 with an updated user interface, and now the ability, if you choose, it will take responsibility for maintaining your maintaining and updating the, the obsolete or down version software of, of installed on your machine. So to remind people what this is, it's free, completely free, uh, Secunia, S-E-C-U-N-I-A. You can just put that into Google. It'll take you to Secunia. And in the upper right-hand corner of their page is a link for um, either for downloads or for specifically for PSI. I can't remember which, but it's easy to get there. And um, this is a, a scanner which we've all used who was inter- anyone who was interested in this in the past, and I mean, to very nice benefit. I like it. Um, it will just rummage through your hard drive and look at the versions of virtually everything you've got installed. It's it's very comprehensive. It's also very small. I think it's only a couple meg in size, and and alert you of things you've got on your computer that are no longer current, um, and you know. We're very used to things like Acrobat and, and Windows and um, updating themselves, certainly Chrome browser from Google, updating themselves on a more or less constant basis. But there's a lot of apps that don't have that built in or that only do it when you run them 
and you may be running a very old version the first time you, you start something up again. So this will look at it even when it's not running and say, hey, you know, by the way, there's a whole new version of this. So it's nice, and uh, I, I can endorse it easily. So it's now at version 2.0 with new features. Cool. Um, Google has enhanced their warnings. We've talked before about how when you do a Google search and it brings up a page of links, you may see, and I've seen a couple times, a, a warning saying this site may be compromised. The idea being that, that Google's own bots are looking at sites when they go into them in order to index them and flagging when they see, for example, you know, clear malware, they'll, they'll warn you that this is probably not a link you want to click on. And in fact, I think when you do click on it, it takes you to an intercept page that Google puts up, I mean, to really protect you from doing this by mistake. And then you have to deliberately say, okay, yes, I really want to go to this place that you think is bad in order to get past it. Well, they've enhanced that, making it more sensitive, um, adding the, uh, another phrase where it says, this site may harm your computer in a di instead of this site may be compromised. Um, wait, I got it backwards. It always, it always used to say this site may harm your computer. Now, it is, well, now what they've added is this site may be compromised, meaning that they've detected some things that they sense indicates that the site may not be under the full control of the site's owner. So, you know, various types of not necessarily malicious stuff, but just something that seems fishy to them, they'll now warn people of. So, you know, I think that's I think it makes so much sense for for search engines to to be able to take this kind of responsibility because for most of us, that's the way we view the net is through the lens of the the search system which finds things for us that we want to um explore further. Um, in the ongoing battle with Google and their inadvertent collection of, of uh, wireless data, I did note that Connecticut's Attorney General, Richard Blumenthal, had given Google a couple weeks, several weeks ago, to turn over the data that they had mistakenly and inadvertently collected from Connecticut's residents. And as of 5 p.m. Friday, which was the end of last week, Google, or that's December 17th, Google had not done so and is apparently refusing to do so, which I applaud them for. Um, I, I, from my, you know, bird's eye view, I really can't see any, any use for Google turning this stuff over. And it just seems to me, uh, you know, just more stirring the pot without any, you know, particular value. Hmm. Good. So, yeah, I, yeah. I, again, I think Google can just say, look, we, we, you know, we got this random stuff, just let us delete it. And in fact, they had deleted all of the UK data finally. Right. So, you know, that was good. We've talked about IP space depletion and how the clock is running out uh, for like late summer of 2011 for there literally to be no more IP addresses. Everybody who's got one can keep theirs pretty much. Um, but the rate at which they really have been allocated um, is accelerating as, of course, the Internet becomes a bigger deal, uh, and we're running out of our 4.3 billion IPs. 
um, in a little weird event, there's an ISP in Okinawa who was given a chunk of the 49-dot block. So all it used to be that there were no IPs beginning with 49. That was one of them, one of the major Class A networks that just had, it would, it's like, you know, five uh, that, that we've talked about before that just wasn't ever used, which is why Hamachi had been using the five-dot network. Well, the 49-dot network was is beginning to be handed around, and I got an interesting tweet from Brandon Carlson, who is in Okinawa, um, saying that a, a provider that he uses, GL Broadband, has a page up to explain to their users that as a consequence of the fact that the routing tables on the Internet are taking longer than they should to be updated, that's why their users are unable to access Xbox Live, ESPN Player, Livestrong, Mebo, NFL Game Pass, the Nova Scotia Southeastern University, and the Washington Heights Church, just to name a few. So, so what's happened is that, that routing tables, you know, we've been talking about the problem with, 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 with like, um, inadvertent updates to routing tables, which was for some length of time diverting traffic through China. Um, routing tables are something that ISPs are being increasingly careful about letting change. And so even though the, the allocation of this new IP, you know, 16 million IP space of which this GL broadband has received a chunk, even though it's official and legitimate and real, there are some routers that have not gotten the message. And those are the routers of the specific sites or routers related to the specific sites that some geo-broadband users cannot access. So their traffic is probably able to go to those IPs of those sites, but Internet connections require a round trip in order to establish a connection and in order for any data to come back as well. And so packets are trying to get back to 49 dot something dot something dot something, and they're being thrown away. They're being, you know, it's a so-called black hole, which means just sent into oblivion because those routers, routers somewhere along the path back, still don't know where that, that particular 49.IP range is. So they're inaccessible, essentially. Again, it's largely functional, but they're little patches that sort of grayed out around the Internet. So I thought this was an interesting little anecdote for the kind of problems we're seeing as you know, major new blocks of IP space are brought online for the first time as will be happening for the for the next nine months until there there is no more at least that long yeah yeah, yeah. um also um the our friends uh in florida at i'm blanking on their name um hmm. sun oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. uh sun, alex yeah i know who you're talking about <laughs> sun thing sun something sun <laughs> uh ah yeah. 
shoot. Well, the chat room will tell me in a second. Yeah, it, they it will. It takes a little while here. Uh, anyway, they were blogging about a new problem that has been picked up by a number of other people. The next annoyance... Sunbelt. Sunbelt software, <laughs> yes. And uh, the winner is a monkey mind. And it, I, I was also... They, were, they just got acquired by somebody, a three-letter acronym, G, GLT or something. Anyway, um, anyway, so Sunbelt Software, who's a you know, great following of, of, uh, and source of security information, uh, blogged recently to people who followed their blog to watch out for fraudulent defraggers. That's the, <laughs> oh, that's the latest thing to happen. You know, there's so many useful free software out there, it's not surprising that the bad guys are going to be mixing their own malware in right. with the good stuff. Of course. So there's HDD Repair, HDD Rescue, HDD Plus, Ultra Defragger, ScanDisk, Defrag Express and WinHDD have all been identified as bogus. They claim to, you know, de free defragger to make your computer run faster the way it used to, and who doesn't want that? Um, what what these things do, though, they're scareware. You run them, they actually do no defragging at all, but they, you know, apparently do something, and then they come back with a note that, oh, you've got serious problems, baby. Um, we're going to need another $20 or an initial $20 or more, in some cases, to fix this problem. So, you know, again, this is going to catch a certain number of people who unwittingly download this and don't know any better. So I thought I would take the opportunity to mention my top three defraggers for Windows. Um, Oh, good. Do you really need them, though? I mean, you're the expert. eh, Not so much. I think NTFS uh, and OS ten on the Mac side, the HFS plus uh, uh, file system do a much better job of keeping themselves from getting fragmented. Well, they do, but but my feeling is, for example, when you initially set up a system and you install a million secure, you know, Windows patches, um, that that process of installing all those patches and replacing all the files, it really does mess things up. So I do like to do a post a post installation defrag because from a file recovery standpoint, if anything really ha- bad happened well, that's a good point. to the master dictionaries yeah. on your drive, having the files pieces be contiguous makes recovery possible. I mean, I mean, it really makes a difference from a data recovery standpoint. So, but but the downside is. We know, for example, that as people move more and more towards solid-state drives, there you really do not need to defrag them because there's no benefit. There's nothing, no head moving at all, nothing mechanically happening, and much lower probability of there being a, a, you know, like file system level problems that would be caused by bad sectors because these are solid-state drives. But, But the point is that not only are they solid state, but they don't like to be written to. We know that solid-state drives have a write limit, whereas where, uh, physical drives aren't degraded by writing, solid-state drives are. So defragging, which is a write-intensive thing, is something you'd rather, you'd probably not want to do on a solid-state drive as much as on a, a physical drive. So, so what do you recommend? V 
Viopt, V-O-P-T. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's been around for ages. That's like Golden Bow, right? Golden Bow's Viopt. That's like um, like as old as Spinrite. <laughs> Actually, yes. In fact, uh, the author and uh, Dennis, somebody, and I were friends back in the very early yeah. days of Spinrite. I think I remember it from your recommendation in probably an info world. Probably, and it's also been Jer- our friend Jerry Pornell. Jerry Pornell loves it. Yeah, chaos manner choice. That's right. You know, That's right. I mean, he just can't stop talking about yep. it. Yep. It's today. It's a little pricey at forty dollars. Um, there is an extremely good free one called. They used to be called J.K. Defrag. It's been recently renamed My Defrag, hmm. and it's just at mydefrag.com which I can recommend without reservation. It's open source. The guy makes the source available. Very nice UI. I like defraggers where the the resolution of the screen, where you can like see all the little fragments, where they when it's high resolution instead of low resolution. Because I just like I'm fascinated. I can just sit there and watch my hard drive be defragged, you know, for hours, which is typically how long you well how long it takes. I mean, it makes Spinrite seem reasonable in terms of, of data recovery. Um, and then a very reasonable priced product that I really like also is called Perfect Disk uh, by a company called Raxco, R-A-X-C-O. It's $29.99 or $29.95. And the one thing it is able to do that neither of the others do, being commercial and being very mature, is it will do a boot time defrag of your of your system files that like like the, the the things that are in use that normally no other in windows defragger can is able to touch that's huge yes so the directories and the mft the master file table which is like the major table of contents for the ntfs file system that there are these major pieces of of the drive that cannot be defragged so all you're able to do is defrag sort of the things it points to that is the pieces of the files but not the directories and the major indexes because this thing has the ability to do a boot time defrag you're able to say you know yes do all of that next time i reboot then when you reboot it takes you to a sort of a pre-boot screen and rummages around for a while doing that work that can only be done outside of Windows while Windows has not yet mounted that volume itself, which is, you know, very handy. So uh, it's unique. Actually, there are a few other programs that will do that, but this is my favorite of those that will do that, and it's just $29.95. And it also does regular in-Windows defragging, does a very nice job, but they don't have a high-resolution display. You see only kind of like big blocks moving around. I like to see all the little bits uh, if I'm doing a defrag. Well, that's good. Thank you. Oh, there's more? No, no, no. That's it. That's it, except that one other piece of news that I learned about from, again, my Twitter friends. Hang on to it. Okay. Because I think if we're, if with any luck, Skype is back. Oh! Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) So much better. (laughs) Cute. <laughs> All right. One, uh, so, yeah. so one more, one more thing. Yes. So, uh, 
Uh, it's funny because I thought you were going to say, "Okay, hold on a second. We're going to have a little. We're going to hear from our sponsors before we uh, <laughs> no. proceed." Actually, we want to hear from Skype. So, so by uh, the way, if you if you if suddenly it's like the Wizard of Oz where we went from <laughs> black and white to color, Skype has now started working, and so Steve is back on Skype, and this just really underscores the quality of a of a Skype connection if you're feeding it with good mics and yeah and good cameras and all of that. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Okay, so. Uh, thanks again to my to the great group of people who are keeping an eye out of interesting things on on Twitter. Um, the did you hear about the SSL keys being released through no. this group called the Little Black Box? Mm-mm. Okay, get this. If you think about it, any device, any embedded device like our Linksys, Cisco, D Link. Uh, whatever routers, and even even something that provides SSL VPN, they need to have a private key, and the private key that is in order to do, uh, to do an SSL connection. You know, just as we've talked about how servers have their private SSL key, and then their public one is in the certificate which they offer in order to establish a connection. Well, embedded devices have to have private SSL keys also. And this has long been known as a potential vulnerability, which no one has so far taken really good advantage of. But the SSL key is embedded in the firmware, and the firmware is downloadable, which means the keys can be found, which means that that SSL in the case of our embedded devices, is not secure. It can't be. Because the thing that the sole, the sole thing you have to do is keep your private key private, which is arguably impossible to do in an embedded device. Now, it's not such a problem, for example, for our routers, because... Hopefully, everyone has remote administration shut down on their router so that there's no WAN side access to their administrative interface. And, and even if they did, we would hope they've, by now, changed the, the, the username and password and made them very strong if for some reason they did need to, to leave open WAN side access. So the only time you would probably be establishing an SSL connection to your router, if you even bothered to, is over your own LAN when you were using your browser to connect to it over um, over um, standard SSL, you know, port 80 to the router. But there now exists this database of more than 2,000 private SSL keys. What they've done that makes it special is that they have associated the private keys with the public keys and made it searchable. Um, If you go to code.google.com slash P slash little black box, that's that's where this project lives. Code.google.com slash P slash little black box. All you have to do is you can you can give this code that that's been written the path to the 
to any of these embedded devices public certificate file and it will find the public certificate use that to look up the private certificate the private key or you can give it the SHA1 hash of the public certificate which is one of the you know is is a way that public certificates are fingerprinted and communicated or um you can give it a a pcap but for example a, a window a, a wireshark or win pcap file of the of the capture of data and it will look for the public certificate in the exchange or you can give it access to the live network interface and it will listen for the public certificate exchange basically what these guys have done is they've made it extremely easy to i mean like you could hardly be any easier to find the private key to look up the private key given the public key during the NESSL exchange with up to 2000 embedded devices and routers and SSL VPNs uh many for example uh, DDWRT has has a a VPN version um this is it's been possible in the past there have been databases like this but in order to do it you needed to know for example the specific device the model the vendor the firmware version subversion and so forth and and then you would need to like do a lot of this dirty work yourself well this has made it far easier we haven't really seen any exploit of this yet and again i'm i don't want to worry people needlessly that is that this is isn't the end of the world as we know it because again all this would allow you to do would be to in the case of an embedded device to potentially eavesdrop on or perform an effective man on the middle attack i do think we're going to be talking about this in the future because i can imagine ways that this information could be leveraged um further for example in the case of vpns which are depending upon a key which is static now from the standpoint of fixing this this needs to be fixed in the long term as you can imagine leo this is this is not a good thing um what it means is that that part of the installation of an embedded device which doesn't exist today would be generating its own unique key pair that is there is no reason why every linksys router of a certain firmware version needs to be using the same private and essentially asymmetric key pair a private and a public key the technology exists for those to be generated on the fly but no one bothers with it yet i can foresee a point in the future where there will be an option you know probably in the ui of routers where you can press a button and it will no doubt take a while especially on the underpowered processing um chips that that typical embedded devices have but it's it's something i imagine we're going to be seeing before long because it's really not a good idea for a database to exist containing the 
I mean, essentially, the, the, the private credentials of all the embedded devices that we're using. And no, that exists now. No, and no kidding. <laughs> easy to use. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like rainbow tables, or no? Um, it's very much like that, actually. Yeah. I mean, a rainbow table, of course, is where pre hashes have, be, have been pre-computed. Here, the idea is that even though it's been known that embedded devices had private keys, it wasn't easy to get them. You had to literally, you know, you had, they had, you had to have high motivation for getting the private key. Now, it's trivial because the public key, I mean, the whole point of an asymmetric key is that the public key is in the certificate that is exchanged during the beginning of an SSL connection. And the, the all of the crypto security comes from the fact that from the public key, you cannot in any reasonable amount of time determine the private key, except the private key is in the firmware. It's embedded in it. And so if there's a database that has that you where you can now look up the private key from the public key just because someone went and did that work once of extracting That's the a lot of work the, the private key yeah but we got a lot of little people out there running around <laughs> yeah so obviously was, there was some board somewhere where they said hey you know run this oh, program and, and give and, give us what you get and more are being added to the database on an ongoing basis. In fact, part of this little black box project has a means for people to submit new public and private oh, key pairs I see. that have been found. And more than 2,000 already. If you look, everything everything you've ever seen is already listed in this database. So it's not good. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, following up on last week's mention of... Uh, in, in the Q&A of ShopShield, which was one of these, you know, credit card replacement deals, I told people that I had had no chance then to do any vetting of it, to, to see what I thought about it, and then to, to check into it further. Well, I'm, I feel a little bit mixed. Um, it's not inexpensive. It's $10 a month or $100 per year to use this, which is a little daunting, they do have a pay-as-you-go variant where it's $2 per generation of a temporary credit card. And if I were going to use it, that's probably what I would do. Um, you know, for example, if I was ordering something from someone that just seemed really sketchy, where I really, I mean, like, you know, they didn't offer any referral to um, uh, PayPal or Google Checkout, if I had no choice but to give a sketchy site my credit card information. I mean, whereas otherwise I would probably just not buy from them. But if it's something I really wanted, they oh, they were the only people that, that had it, and I had to give them my credit card number, eh, this is somewhere where it's worth $2 to me to run it through this thir the shop shield as a third party. Um, am I willing to pay $10 a month? Well... To me, I'm not sure how how much I would use it, so that's a trade-off that I'd have to think about. Um, it seems like a lot of money. I wish it was less. And they they I mean in general, I mean they're clearly trying to to monetize the service that they're offering. They offer the ability, for example, to create a one-time email connection where you give somebody an email link and and then that email is bounced to you 
using them as an anonymizing service, and that's a dollar. It's like, oh, come on. I mean, that seems really outrageously expensive for how simple it is to do. So I wanted to follow up on that. I'm I'm less excited than I was hoping I was going to be after looking at all of the, uh, well. the gory details. Yeah. And you'll remember also in Errata that I mentioned that uh, one of our questioners uh, from last week, Nick in Thief River Falls, mentioned that Chrome does have side tabs. And you went looking for them, presumably using Chrome for, for Mac last week, and you didn't see that uh, option. It's not there in Chrome for Mac. Oh. Only Chrome for Windows. Oh, I don't, rats. I don't know why. But I went looking for it, too. Yeah, I didn't uh, see it, and I, now I know why. All right. Yes, it's not there, unfortunately. That's the, that's a, a, but it's a nice feature, and I'm sure they'll add it eventually. That would be great. Yeah. You know, I mean, it is very nice to have tabs running down the left-hand side. I like it a lot. Yeah. And then I just wanted to mention uh, a listener of ours, John Newcomb, who had a, a nice experience with Spinrite. He said, Dear Steve, just wanted actually a nice thing to say about us, too. Uh, <laughs> funny in this context of this horrible first half of the show. He said, Dear Steve, just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate you for all the great info um, I get from your podcast with Leo Laporte. You have such a wonderful radio personality. And with Leo, you guys are a great team. I recently bought a copy of Spinrite that I have added to my bag of tricks. I'm a computer tech and work for a company who serves the dental industry. Spinrite has already saved me a lot of time. I was in an office the other day working on a machine that would not fully boot Windows. I ran Spinrite, and it recovered several bad sectors, which allowed me to then image the drive and install a new one. Thank you for making my job easier. Your software works so well in using it, and observing all the little details you took care of, I think it's clear how much care you put into it. Sincerely, John Newcomb, Oakland, California. So thanks very much for the update, John. Very cool. We're going to take a break, come back with uh, Bluetooth security. Yes, how Bluetooth operates. I love that. But before we do, can I mention our friends at MailRoute? Actually, it's really my friend. At MailRoute. His name is Tom Johnson. I met him at a family camp some time ago. He, was, uh, he spent a lot of time in his cabin. I found out it was because he was, he was working on an anti-spam solution called MailRoute. He said, you want to beta test it? This is 2004. I said, yeah, give it a try. Six years later, I'm still using it, and I, uh, I'm hooked. I, I can't, there's nothing else I can use. MailRoute uh, is for servers. So I run a server called leoville.com. I use it for my email, you know, my personal email, and all my family members and friends, I give them email accounts there. And, of course, if you link it to Gmail or, you know, Yahoo Mail, there's anti-spam filtering at, the, at that end. But I like the idea of server-side filtering, and I'll tell you why. In the last 12 months... MailRoute.info has stopped 970,000 spam messages. That, those are messages that didn't end up on the server. They were blocked at the server. Um, and, and, and that's a lot of traffic I didn't have to pay for. I didn't have to worry about. 30,000 good messages, 970,000 bad messages. 97% of the email to leoville.com is spam because I've had that account for an awfully long time. MailRoute is great. If you run your own server, if you're a company that needs the privacy, if you're, uh, I know many universities use MailRoute, 
Um, this is a great solution. Prices start at $2 per user per month. That's for 10 users, but the, it goes down the more users you have. And uh, thanks to the Twit Army, MailRoute has added a new service for individual users, less than $30 per user per year for individuals. Uh, so I, if you want to check it out, go to MailRoute.info. Tom Merritt's using it now, and he's very happy. I've been using it, as I said, for six years. MailRoute.info, and you will save 10% when you use that special URL. Because that says, I'm a Twit listener. 10% off. And not just for the first month or first year, for the life of your account. Mailroute.info. Steve, I'm ready to talk Bluetooth. I use Bluetooth all the time. I've got my Bluetooth headset on. My Ford Sync is using Bluetooth. Um, it's, it's, I, I use it on stereo headphones. And so I'm very concerned. How secure is it? Well, and for me, um, I use it uh, in the tethering mode with my BlackBerry when I'm away from Wi-Fi. Right. Um, you know, it's a, uh, it's a great solution. I have the MiFi from Verizon, but that's just one more thing you've got to pay $69 a month for. And, you know, if you have a phone which is tethering capable, um, I guess the iPhone is still not. Is that the case? Uh, no, it is now. It's always been in the uh, in uh, Europe, and I believe you now can do it. AT and T allowed it on the iPhone four. Oh, okay, so so um, so there you would be. Uh, does it tether with Bluetooth or with Wi Fi? Um, now you're asking me. I think it's pretty yeah. sure it's Bluetooth, but I don't. Okay, I don't know. No, maybe it's just USB. I don't know. That's a good question. Anyway, so I never use case, it. <laughs> but on the yeah. other hand, I am using Bluetooth uh, tethering all the time. Right. On uh, on my uh, Android phones, and so that's another security. I didn't even I was, consider that another security issue. Yeah. Yep. I was just going to say the, the, the Bluetooth on Android. So the the technology bears the the horrible age of about a decade. Um, when you look at it closely, first of all, this came from Ericsson. Uh, Ericsson before they they became Sony Ericsson and Sony bought the the, the Ericsson phone line um, ten years ago. Actually, it was I think it was in '99, so almost eleven or twelve years ago. Ericsson wanted a new technology that would allow them to link their phones to peripherals uh, like wireless headsets, for example. And the good news is that. They really understood and and appreciated the need for security. Um, the name Bluetooth actually comes from some Danish king who was Harald Bluetooth. Yes. <laughs> who consolidated Denmark and I guess part of Norway back in the early 1900s. United Scandinavia. And so this is a uniting technology. Right? Exactly. Yeah. That, was the, that was the goal. And in fact, the That's logo... That's what Ericsson says anyway. I don't know if it's yeah. true. But. The logo, apparently in whatever wacky language they had, HB, Harold, Harold Bluetooth, in some language, is something that looks like an asterisk and then something that looks like a B. And so that's actually, that's where that logo came from, where it's that sort of that pointy, pointy looped B with the funky little, air, you know, lines coming out the backside. It's actually, there's, if you look at it, you can sort of see an asterisk embedded with a B. And so that was the source of the logo. So um, they 
introduced this in 94 um, after a couple years of work. And then in about four years later, uh, Ericsson was joined by uh, Nokia, IBM, Toshiba, and Intel to form a the so-called Bluetooth SIG. They were the original members of the SIG. And now it's literally thousands of companies. Um, the specs started off a little rough because it is it is a as i said it it shows its age it is just a disaster of a protocol if if you if you set somebody down with the spec which by the way is 1200 pages i mean it's like the us tax code um if you set this them down with it there is absolutely no chance at all that they could produce something that worked with anything else. They, you know, it would their their stuff would work with their own stuff, but there's no chance it would have interoperability. And not surprisingly, that was the big problem with Bluetooth at the beginning was that pe- people would implement their Bluetooth technology and they wouldn't be able to connect with anything else. They could work with their own stuff, but not anybody else's equipment. So over the years there has been a code base essentially that has been refined and is available to people who want to implement Bluetooth that basically is more useful than the spec. The, 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 the specification is just, it's horrendous. Um, people who have used Bluetooth are aware that there's, that it's, it's, not something that you have to configure. So the goal, you know, Ericsson's goal, this was going to be a consumer network, some something where it where these things could somehow find each other in a process called discovery and 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 just interoperate. However, they also wanted it to be secure. So what what, what they did was they created this notion of pairing where you 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 pair two Bluetooth enabled things through some sort of a an easy to use process. Um, devices may or may not have screens. They may or may not have keyboards. Um, it could be, for example, just speakers where it's somehow going to just work. Yet you still want there to be this this pairing process. So what what Ericsson worked out is this notion of a device being discoverable, which if you've got a user interface then that, that is on your device, you can typically turn that on and off. One of the most important things to do in security with Bluetooth is have your device not be discoverable by default. That is, you only want it to be discoverable during the period of time that two devices need to literally discover each other because having it be discoverable begins to open it up to some security problems. Mostly, they're implementation problems of the particular vendor that has put things together. And the history of Bluetooth security has been compared to other histories of security relatively okay we'll talk in a couple of weeks about where this has not been okay but 
the number one problem, the chief source of trouble, has been that people have left their devices in a discoverable mode rather than not. We've talked about that many times before. Yes, yes. And in fact... I think we did a TV segment on it. We did. And in fact, you know, turning on a Bluetooth (laughs) device, we were in Vancouver at that point. Right, right. there was like everybody had their phones were discoverable. <laughs> now, like, by the way, I should point out that was a couple of years ago, and I think it's changed completely. Yes. Most phones fact, default to not discoverable. Yes. And and the really nice thing is if they if the UI won't allow them to stay that way, there's no reason right. that it ought to be, you know, like you set it to discoverable and leave it. It ought to be you know, I'm going to do some pairing, so press this button, and I've got five minutes, and then it's going to turn off. It's going to like, and so what that pairing mode would be, would be Bluetooth discoverability would be on. Now, what this means is that the device responds essentially to a an, an inquiry message in the Bluetooth protocol. So one of the concerns has been that even without being paired, they're actually your your devices are part of anyone's Bluetooth network that has a Bluetooth device on. So there's sort of a, a, a sort of an inherent low level of promiscuity happening between all Bluetooth devices all the time. So the other thing I would recommend and do is turn off Bluetooth completely. If it's not inconvenient to do so, for example, I've got Bluetooth on my BlackBerry. It's off all the time. Not only is discoverability off, but the Bluetooth radio is off. And that's the case with my laptop, which is the, the thing that I would normally connect my BlackBerry to if I wanted to get on the net when I was not near Wi-Fi. So... And that also has the advantage of saving some power because the Bluetooth radio, although the Bluetooth technology is very lean in terms of power consumption, it's not zero power consumption. So if you want, you know, your your handset, your handheld to to run longer, and and if you if you're not actively using Bluetooth, and if you're not going to like use it soon. Turn off the radio completely because there's you know there's no way to be more secure than not to have it on at all. So um, Bluetooth operates under what's called the the unlicensed ISM band, which is 2.4 gigahertz. Um, Nominally, it gives us about 10 meters of range. So think of that as like around 30 feet is the distance between two devices which are running what's called class one, which is one milliwatt of power. Class There is a class two and a class three. Class two devices have 10 times the power and, um, uh, and substantially more range. Um, and then class three devices can go at 100 milliwatts and, and extend up to 10 meters. So it is... It is the case that if you have a a class three device put, pumping out much more power and with a much more sensitive receiver, that you can't count on that ten meter range for security because it can be as many as three hundred feet 
you know, 100 meters. So you can get some distance out of Bluetooth. So, you know, one of, one of the things people generally um, fall back on for Bluetooth security is that it is a short range technology. It's, you know, it's something that's, that's nice about it, but it's not something that you can count on. And so it's meant to, meant for, you know, as so-called PAN, personal area network, or also in the Bluetooth spec, they refer to it as a Pico net, you know, very small little networks. Yeah, that makes sense. So every Bluetooth device has something that's exactly analogous to a Mac address on Ethernet adapters. We've talked about Mac addresses, how they are, a Mac address is 48 bits, where 24 bits is assigned by, by, to a manufacturer, and, tw- and, the, and another 24 bits is a serial number of that manufacturer, so that the concatenation of those two 24-bit pieces, in the case of an Ethernet MAC address, will be unique. We have exactly the same thing, a 48-bit unique device ID for every single Bluetooth device. So no two of them are the same. Um, so that gives us a six-byte address, which will be unique. When, when the two devices are paired during this initial handshaking pairing agreement, they exchange their 48-bit identities, um, and they, they also agree upon, during this pairing, a... 128-bit key. So, so that's the thing which is agreed upon during pairing and stored in each of their databases because um, anyone who's used Bluetooth will, will, will be aware of the, uh, the idea that you, you pair once, then the devices are known to each other and do not need to go through this pairing process again. Um, the spec also allows for a 248-character user-assignable name. Um, and, for example, um, I think I, I called my BlackBerry a CrackBerry when I was setting it up. And I noticed that when I was pairing with um, my laptop, it said, oh, you know, I have just found, um, you know, Steve's CrackBerry. Uh, is that the device that you want to pair with? It's like, yep, that's the one. So... That's a user assignable string just for your for your own human you know recognition purposes when you are trying to identify the device um, to help you find it. So so this pairing database contains the 128-bit key, which is arrived at randomly, and the 48-bit device ID of the associated device and this 248 up to 248 character, although normally user interfaces that you work with will limit you to something much shorter, but it's you know long enough for you to convey your meaning to identify what that device is. Um, um, there's that triplet which is established for each device, each Bluetooth device. The, there is a sort of a range of of pairing authentication from none to um, extreme based on a so-called pin and 
I'm, I'm sure, Leo, for example, if, you, if you've paired something before, some devices just have like a default of zero, zero, right. zero, zero. That would be none. <laughs> which is to say, exactly. No security. Yeah. No security. The, the idea of the pin is that you want something, you want to, the, the only time where there is known protocol vulnerability, meaning a vulnerability that the spec understands not a vulnerability because of a mistake made in the protocol where you know crypto guys are going to attack this thing but an understandable man in the middle we know we have a problem at this particular moment that's during pairing because because you have two devices that don't know each other and there's you need some means of authentication. We've often talked about how authentication is the only way that you can you can theoretically solve a man in the middle problem is if the if each end is able to somehow authenticate. If you don't have that, then there's no way of knowing that there wasn't there wasn't a third party that inserted themselves in the middle where you are mistakenly authenticating with that third party, that is each endpoint is authenticating with that third party, which has now successfully managed to negotiate itself a, a role in the middle. So what you, what, what you absolutely have to have is something out of band. Out of band meaning some, some channel of information not in the band, not not in the, the the same stream as the rest of the protocol, and that's what the pin provides. It provides something that you can you the user can provide to each end that that no man in the middle could know, and so the most robust thing would be a long unique passphrase which you would type into each endpoint. In that case, that would be merged into their into their pairing protocol and and no man in the middle would be would know what that was because they, because they're seeing the result of it um, after encryption and and only when the other side sees that the other that the other side obviously knows the same passphrase is pairing achieved. The problem is with a little headset or speakers or something, you don't have that user interface. So so there is this notion of well, we're going to do the best job we can with pairing given the limitations, but. But the good news is, you know, you probably care much less about a man-in-the-middle attack on your headset, you know, your Bluetooth headset, than you do, for example, than, than I do, for example, when I'm pairing my my phone to my laptop and I want to absolutely make sure that no bad guy has is interposing themselves in between my my you know my connection of my my laptop's connection to the internet so so i want to stress though that the vulnerability that exists to the degree that it exists is only during that that moment of pairing 
So, for example, if you went out into the desert or you, you know, went into a large parking lot uh, where you knew that there, you could visually see that there was no one close to you, um, and per, to, per, if you were really paranoid to perform your pairing, then once that's done, both sides have this 128-bit key, which is plenty of strength, as we'll see, um, in their da- in their pairing database, and then that process never needs to be done again. So, so there's there's this short window of opportunity at the moment of pairing, which is is which where the vulnerability is only a function of whether you have the ability to provide information that anyone listening could not have. So, for example, sometimes if you're pairing your keyboard to a computer, the keyboard doesn't have a display, but your computer does. So the, the computer can say, oh, good, I see that you're trying to pair this keyboard to me. Type the following into the keyboard. So the, the so, so your computer is able to give you a nice long passphrase Normally, what we're seeing is six characters because there's been a sort of an agreed upon spec that says one in a million is enough. Six six decimal characters gives us, you know, zero, 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 zero to nine, 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 nine. One in a million chances of guessing that. Especially in such a short period of time. Exactly. You can't can't brute force it because it's over in seconds. You, exactly, and there is a in the spec is a um, uh, exponential delay in failed attempts, so that it doubles for every failed attempt, and so it quickly becomes impossible to, to to brute force this. And as you said, you know, you've got devices that are that are like saying, "Oh, sorry, we 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 you know we either succeeded or failed in the pairing." Yeah, most of these so, devices don't give you an infinite amount of time to try. It, Exactly. And so so if if you have a computer with a screen, you're able to type in you type into the keyboard, which has no display, the sequence that the computer prompted you. So in that way, you have you've established out of bound out, out of band communications. The weakest pairing is with something that has absolutely it's got no keyboard. It's got no user interface, you know, and there you're you're, you're you may be paired um, with a another device that says, well, you know, what's the pin for this device? And it's just by by agreement, it's zero 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 zero. Well, so anybody could know that. Anybody technically, if they were listening right at that moment, you know, was very good with radio and had the ability to intercept this communications, they could do so. But you know, that's you know, it's just. That's the only known vulnerability in the protocol, and it's a trade-off that I think is entirely reasonable, Leo. As you said, in the case of a keyboard, you you, you can type in a long passphrase. Between two more sophisticated devices, you can do something even longer. So um, it it ended up being, from a consumer standpoint, a a an efficient and useful protocol, um, and I think you know a a nice a nice set of trade-offs. So once once the devices have established their their pairing relationship they use a an interference avoidance technology known as frequency hopping 
in any group of of Bluetooth devices and you can and, or these so-called Pico nets, you can have up to eight devices in a single Pico net. So th- that is you could have eight devices that are sort of essentially connected together. One is always a master, and then you could have up to seven slaves. A device can be a master of one Pico net and a slave of another, or it can be a slave in multiple Pico nets, but no device can be two masters at the same time. The This notion of a master is established because the master that the that mac address which is the bluetooth address that 48 bits that's known as, by virtue of this pairing to every device that the master is paired with and that 48 bit mac address provides the pseudo random sequence for frequency hopping so so the way any kind of interference is avoided is that within this 2.4 gigahertz band, there's a large number of individual channels. And the, the master and all of the slaves that are in the same PicoNet, and it's typically just two, you normally just have you know, two devices that are paired together, but the spec allows for eight. Um, the, 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 the master establishes the, the clock and using, the, using its own address and the slaves using their knowledge of the master's address and using the clock which is publicly transmitted, that allows them to, to, to do frequency hopping where they're constantly changing the frequency they operate at. That's done not as much for avoiding bad guys, but for avoiding interference. Because you may have, it turns out that this unlicensed frequency range, this 2.4 gigahertz, is very popular. Um, uh, wireless phones, you know, like, like uh, old, older um, wireless handset phones used in homes, um, all kinds of, of devices and, in, and instrumentation use this because it's a, a, a block of frequencies in this band that were set aside so that you needed no license to use it given that you keep power at or below 100 milliwatts. So so the problem is that you may have, a if, if we stayed on a single frequency, there might be something interfering on that one frequency. So the idea is that we, we do this frequency hopping so that we're avoiding any interference. And the later specifications have added something called adaptive frequency hopping, where all of the devices will recognize when there's interference and, and avoid, while they're hopping, avoid channels that may be congested in order to improve the reliability of all this. The data rate is nominally, the original um, uh, Bluetooth spec, nominally one megabit per second, but there's enough overhead that we lose about 25% of that. So you actually get about 721 kbits per second of actual throughput. 
But then later on, so-called EDR, enhanced data rate technology, was added where where we used to send a single um, frequency modulated signal they began they added something called phase modulation to the actual uh, down at the rf level at, at at the radio level so they were able to instead of sending a single symbol they were able to send two or three um and so the the later technology is able to run at 3 megabits per second so we get an effective data of 2.1 megabits per second um through the whole technology now the final piece of of concern and and it is concern is the actual crypto being 10 years ago we did not have AES um RC4 existed but it was still patent encumbered so Ericsson did the unfortunate thing of making up their own and everyone who <laughs> as uh, we know that's a bad uh, idea <laughs> everyone listening is now going oh no why 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 it's a bad idea the good news is they used a they used a uh, I don't know what I okay I I don't know how how to describe this I'll just describe it I, I don't know how to characterize it <laughs> okay it's it's bad it has not it hasn't been penetrated but it can only be because no one has really tried that hard because there isn't anything really that valuable typically transiting a bluetooth connection after all if you know if you're talking in your car well you know the only one who could really intercept your communication is in the car with you because of you know you're in a you're in a in a steel enclosed container and you've got a weak radio signal at a milliwatt which rate you know which has a distance of about 10 meters and besides they can hear what you're saying so there's no need to intercept it because it's carrying that's, the, that's it's, a good point <laughs> it's carrying the audio that anybody with ears can hear so you know typically it's low value stuff but the the they uh, the the technology uses a pseudo random sequence generator now that's not bad because that's what rc4 after all is so you well, can that's have, all we have really right is pseudo random yes exactly yeah. well i mean well, computers you know, blo- block ciphers like aes where where you you're taking and mapping um 128 bits into a different 128 bits that's that 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 provides a keyed transform of you know a block of 120 bits into another but but you know the stream ciphers you know like rc4 are you know can be very good i, I was just saying last week and i i mentioned at the top of this show you know the skype is using rc4 right now we're talking over rc4 based encryption and nothing can crack it because it's done right I'm not so sure nothing can crack this one. Um, what they did was, now again, 10 years ago, so I forgive them, they needed something that would be low power, that is low compute power, that could be easily implemented in hardware, 
even hardware-assisted software, or maybe even largely in hardware, like in a chip, instead of having a you know a processor that's being driven by firmware. So they used shift registers, which is never a good place to start. Um, there's something called LFSRs, linear feedback shift registers. the The idea is you use a a a, a shift register is think of it as a string of bits that shift in one direction so that there's an input think of it on the left and everything every time this is clocked all the bits in the shift register move one to the right so bits that go in come out the other end the number of clock pulses later that this thing is long. So if you had an 8-bit shift register, you would sh- the bits would come in, and 8 bits later, they would come out. Well, there is a technique for generating pseudo-random streams where you take multiple taps. There, it's called taps on the shift register, where, where you've got these, this string of bits, and then you look at maybe... Three, three of them, three specifically located bits, and you XOR all those together along with the output. And the result of that is what you feed back into the input. So what this means is that this will, as, this, as the bits are shifted along, the, the bits, which are ones or zeros, in the particular points where the shift register is tapped, they determine the next bit being shifted in. Now, in fact, this uses four of these linear feedback shift registers with lengths of 25, 31, 33, and 39 bits, respectively. If you add those together, 25 plus 31 plus 39 plus 33, Oh, sorry, 25, 31, 33, 39, you get 128, which is one, which is not a coincidence, obviously. The idea is that the key that is being used to key this is dumped into the shift registers. So you have a number of problems. For example, if a shift register had zero in it, Say it was all zeros. Well, if you tap it three times and, and then take the output and XOR those together, you're going to get zero. So if you feed a zero in, the shift register is never going to have anything other than zero. So it's a degenerate case. So you've got problems that the, with like looping in, in the shift register where you might end up with a certain combination of bits that just that don't generate much randomness in there. So to deal with that problem, they take the four outputs from the four shift registers and feed them into another random-looking blob of, of, of logic. I mean, I've looked at all this, and I remember thinking, oh, this really doesn't look good. Again, this is the kind of thing where the engineers 10 years ago said, look how confusing this is nobody will ever figure this out well i mean that's 
that's where bad crypto comes from is from that kind of idea it's like oh this is so you know this is so one way engineered that nobody will ever be able to reverse engineer this well again i'm sure that it's because real crypto people have never really tried very hard for example this is frighteningly like the gsm you know gsm cellular um and maybe it's not surprising because ericsson did, <laughs> was involved in that too gsm uses four linear feedback shift registers and it's been cracked because oh. the sent you know the feeling was there's more value right. in cracking cellular you know digital cellular than in digital bluetooth so it this is different um it's been a concern my sense is you know again it's it's good enough for for what bluetooth is used for which is generally low value now because, again because one of the things that makes me so uncomfortable from a crypto standpoint is they keep making it more complex rather than it being elegant. This is the least elegant cipher system I've ever seen because once they have that mechanism, then the key, the, 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 the crypto key is derived from the secret key, which was negotiated from the key that they originally shared. I mean, there were good things they did. For example, this 128-bit key that they agree upon during pairing is never itself used for any crypto operations, which is what you want. You don't ever want to use that key itself. You only want to use derived keys. So they, they derive keys based on random numbers that they generate and based on a shared random number, which is publicly transmitted, and based on the 48-bit master's device address and 26 bits of the master device's real-time clock, which is incremented for each time slot. So... That means that every one of these time slots, as we hop around in frequencies and as packets are occupying time slots, are being keyed differently. So that's good. That means that horrible as this cipher kludge is, we're never using it for long. That is to say, every single packet has a different key. But that mess of data which is munged down to make the key, is then loaded into this, these four linear feedback shift registers and this other finite state machine, which they hang on the end of it just like to determine what goes into the inputs because otherwise they're not stable enough. It's then run forward 200 clocks and the last 128 bits to come out of it is used as the key. So this tells you that the engineers were never really sure that this was secure. So they just kept putting, adding stuff to it. Like this wacky, run it 200 times to kind of get it warmed up. <laughs> and, and, then, and then we have no idea what the last 128 bits are, are going are to be that come out. So we'll use those. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like just, chitty, chitty, bang, bang. It's it like, is. It is just 
atrocious. <laughs> and and now you can imagine why nobody working on their own who had the spec for this could ever make it work with anybody else's equipment. Right. Because they'd get an inverter stuck in there wrong somewhere. Or they'd it'd be 201 clocks. Or it'd be... <laughs> The even phase versus the odd phase. Or, I mean, anything could go wrong with this to break it. And you'd never know. You, I mean, it's just this bizarre, you know, Rube Goldberg contraption that, you know, generates, finally it generates a stream of ones and zeros, finally emerge confused and dizzy out of the <laughs> other, out of the other end of this thing. And that you XOR with your plain text in order to create ciphertext. I love it. <laughs> somehow, somehow we're able to hear you on your wireless headset, Leo. Amazing. It's a miracle. So that's how Bluetooth works. That's the technology, the crypto, uh, the pairing. Um, uh, the, the takeaway is never leave things discoverable and moreover, never leave your Bluetooth radio on if you don't want it to be. In a couple of weeks, we're going to come back and talk about blue jacking, blue snarfing, blue bugging, and all the things that people have cleverly come up with to subvert this system that we've just described. Uh, and that will wrap up our coverage of Bluetooth security. Next week, we'll answer your questions. <laughs> Actually, yeah. next week we will not answer your questions. Next week we will be uh, we will entertain you. We'll have a best of because for the first time in memory, first time ever in six years, Steve is allowing me to force him to take a week off so that uh, for the holidays, and we will have a best of which will be in its entirety the classic portable dog killer episode. And uh, but we'll be back in two weeks, and uh, which will be episode two eighty two. So we'll be back on the even numbered questioning system. Yes. Uh, and uh, if you have a question, grc dot com slash feedback is the place to go. Uh, also, while you're there, get a copy of Spin Right for crying out loud. Make that your Christmas gift to yourself. Oh, it'd be a Christmas gift for me too, and for Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Make that yabba dabba do go off in his uh, in his office. Uh, GRC.com. SpinRight is the world's greatest hard drive maintenance utility. you got to have it. We just had a hard drive die, and I wanted to get it SpinRighted immediately uh, because it's just it works so well. Uh, you can also find a lot of free stuff there, including uh, all of his free security tools. Shields Up is uh, the best known, but there's many others there, and his DNS benchmark. Steve, you're the greatest. And, of course, 16 kilobit and transcriptions of each and every show, including this one. I will snarf you next year, Steve. Cool. And uh, you're going to pogo plug me? I'll pogo and, plug you as uh, well. And uh, we'll say uh, Merry Christmas to our listeners. And we will, uh, we won't see everyone, but we'll be talking to everyone in 2011. Happy New Year. We'll see you next year on Security Thank you. Now. Bye bye, Steve. Security.